Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. If you weren't here last week, I really set out where I felt we were going as a church over the next year. And I talked about our vision. And if you weren't able to be here, I would suggest download it from our website. If you can't download it from the website, then ask me and I'll burn it to a CD for you. Because I think it's important that as a body of people together, we know where God is taking us. And I talked about our vision. Now, Eve obviously guessed something was coming because she's just got out a card because I think she thinks there might be a question coming. (laughs) Perhaps the word vision gave it away. Can you remember anyone except Eve? Just what that first line of our vision is. Okay, it's to build a large town-wide church that is God-centred, Bible-based and spirit-filled. Do you know, if we're going to see the gospel succeed in our generation and if we are going to build strong churches that engage with our culture and bring in the kingdom of God, we need people with vision. We need visionaries. And in fact, not only that, we need tough fighters and tenacious builders. Malcolm and Heather and Chris and Jackie were tenacious builders and tough fighters. After they heard God say that he wanted to plant a church here in Doncaster, it was three years before anything much happened. And they hung on to that throughout that period. We need more people like that. We live in a culture where secularism is advancing and atheism is rampant. We see churches closing particularly here in the West. And the prevailing culture says Christianity is old hat, quaint and irrelevant. We know that's not true. And the strange thing is, at the same time as these churches are closing, something new is springing up. It's springing up everywhere. It's sweeping the world and it is gaining phenomenal numbers. You can look back to the so-called charismatic movement which broke out in the 1960s and that overflowed into most of the historic denominations and it had an extraordinary impact, albeit that it wasn't always without controversy. People were surprised. But why? Because God had promised it. He said, 
in the last days I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. I just want to make it clear at this point, I still have visions. I'm not into dreams yet. Okay? That goes back to that passage in Joel. That wasn't just something that they dreamt up in the New Testament church. It was something that had been prophesied for years. And this latter-day outpouring was going to be characterised by young men seeing visions. Now there's a problem with that. And the biggest problem is that when young men have a vision, they are not always the most welcome people around the place, particularly when you take them into a situation which is lacking vision, when you put dynamic people in a static situation. It causes problems. They are not popular. And that's the sort of times we live in. I'm introducing a new series of talks which will really go from now right through to the summer. And we're going to be looking at three men of God who were visionaries in their time. The first one we're going to look at is Joseph. Joseph was a young and, if I'm honest, somewhat precocious visionary. His style actually left a lot to be desired. But whatever else we say about him, his vision was authentic. When he shared it with his brothers, it resulted in him being thrown out of his home. He had to endure the pain of rejection. He experienced a process of all sorts of God-appointed tests and trials before he arrived at his God-ordained destiny. But he remained true to God's purpose. And because of that, he accomplished it. And he blessed not only the world, but also whom his... He also blessed his brothers, whom he had actually never stopped loving. Back in the 60s and 70s, there were loads of people who were freshly filled with the Holy Spirit who began to see visions. Many of them were asked to leave churches and some of them started on a journey which would ultimately lead to new churches being formed. These churches have increasingly engaged with the needy world in which we live and are these days enjoying success and prospering. If you like, it was a younger generation of zealots and a growing world missionary strategy. Some of them were a bit like Gideon. They were frightened. They were wondering where the God of miracles had gone because they didn't see him in the church of the time. 
But then, clothed with the Holy Spirit, finding fresh courage, dealing with compromise when they found it in their own lives, they gathered teams, they gathered friends, and started to win victories. They've built great churches, some of them. <coughs> Building great churches takes tenacity and endurance. And we can look to Nehemiah for that type of leadership. We can find inspiration by looking at what he did. He was broken-hearted by the news that Jerusalem's walls were destroyed. And it galvanised him into action. It gave him the energy. And then he had an encounter with God. And he became the people's general. He became a giver of hope. And he remorselessly ensured that something that looked absolutely impossible was completed. The walls of the city were rebuilt despite immense opposition. And God's purpose was accomplished. These three characters all have something in common. <coughs> the easiest way to explain it is they don't suffer from what I call the tortoise syndrome. Do you know what I mean by the tortoise syndrome? It tends to happen to people who've been hurt or burnt out. And that is, as soon as you see trouble coming, you duck inside your shell. You keep your head down and you keep out of trouble. They didn't do this. Joseph walked up to his brothers and said, effectively, one day you're all going to bow down to me. Does that sound like someone staying in his safe zone? I don't think so. They were all prepared to put their heads up above the parapet. They were prepared to take on the trends and influences of the age and the culture they lived in and prove that God was able to turn these situations around. And if we take him seriously and respond obediently to his initiatives, we will see the same. Each of them had plenty of reason to give in over the years. They all had hard times. None of them was a sort of comic strip hero that would go into the phone booth, spin round a few times and come out invulnerable. They all were human, totally through and through. And to be honest, they often had to learn the hard way. We live in an age where stardom is expected to be instant and success available at the touch of a button. But actually, God often calls us to painful preparation, often worked out secretly in obedience to him. Faith has to be mixed with patience and fortitude. 
Because even the things God talks to us don't often happen immediately. Each of these men had their hard times. They were misunderstood. Other people misrepresented them. And they had to withstand the pressures of opposition and keep themselves pure and holy. To keep themselves free from self-pity when things were hard and self-justification or retaliation. And then on top of that, they had to do what God had called them to. But all three men had a personal encounter with God. And each of them, as a result, saw devastating situations totally transformed by God's intervention. The church is going through a funny phase at the moment. I don't know whether you've picked this up. It's becoming the increasingly influenced by mood swings. <coughs> it's becoming impressed by what's happening in the world, wider world. There's a lot of church leaders who are looking to the modern gods of market research and secular management to find their direction. Well, market research. It might help us find out what would make the church more appealing to people. But there's a danger. The danger is something we see, which is that the church becomes driven like any other consumer-orientated organisation. And we hear this in comments people often make about church. They treat it as if it was a consumer item. They'll go home from a service and they'll say, wasn't they keen on that song? Not sure that I liked that. Actually, they are missing the whole point. The church has one consumer, and that is God. He is the only one who is justified to tell us what he likes and dislikes. Marketing gives the consumer the final authority. It says the consumer is always right. The Bible tells us God is. So, if we then put marketing aside, in a desperate endeavour to be relevant, some churches have adjusted the gospel to make it a message of personal fulfilment about meeting people's needs. Others have adjusted it so as not to offend their contemporaries. They adapt the message to such a degree that actually even people who don't believe in Christ become scornful. Okay? Matthew Paris, who writes for the Times, wrote this. He was castigating Christians. He said, they're modifying their morality from a fear of becoming isolated from changing public morals. Is that what we want? He continued, it's time 
that convinced Christians stopped trying to reconcile their spiritual beliefs with the modern age and understood that if one thing comes clearly through every account we have of Jesus' teaching, it's that his followers were not urged to accommodate themselves to their age, but to the mind of God. Christianity is not supposed to be comfortable or feel natural, inclusive, moderate or sensible. Christianity is inching its way up a philosophical cul-de-sac. The church stands for revealed truth and divine inspiration, or it stands for nothing. He wrote that on the 9th of August 2003. And there he is. The world can see what the church is doing. But while some are abandoning their distinctives, others are gladly embracing them and discovering the true dynamic. They're enjoying success, lives are being transformed, churches are being planted, and numbers are growing. In the Daily Telegraph on the 27th of February last year, it was reported that more than a thousand new Christian churches have been created in the last seven years. And the remark was that that was more than double the number of Starbucks branches that had opened during that period. 450 branches of Starbucks had been opened. Now there are churches also closing. The churches that are closing tend to be those that are characterised by the type of compromise that Matthew Paris was despising. Meanwhile, a new era is emerging. No one can turn the tide. King Canute tried that. He tried that, that down not far from where I was born in Wessex. He sat on a beach. He's, he's very largely misreported, actually. He did not believe he could turn the tide. His courtiers believed he was all-powerful. And so he actually did it to prove to them he wasn't. But he sat on a beach and he told the tide to go out and he got very wet feet. But there is something you can do. You can see when the tide turns. You can stand on the seafront, you can see the tide coming in, and then you notice something. You notice that it's gone past a certain point and each wave doesn't reach as far up the beach as the ones before it, and they leave a wet mark. And you know something's happened. The tide has turned. I believe the tide has begun to turn in this nation. As many of you know, we have three times a year when we gather our church leaders from across the country um, 
for two days of prayer and fasting. And when that happened recently, we just felt God put a real impression on our hearts that we had entered a new era. A new era. It's not going to be like a new day. We're not going to wake up in the morning and all the familiar things happen that happen every morning. It's not a new day. We're not going to hear the same bird song. We're not going to see the same light of dawn preparing us for the predictable. It's not going to be like a new season. You know, we recognise the seasons when they come round. Spring looks like spring. Autumn looks like autumn. A new era is something less recognisable. Actually, fits in with a prophecy that came from a guy called Keith Hazel from Canada to our international team, Terry, and the guys that meet with him. And that was that we would see a number of years of exponential growth. And I'm in faith for that. I can see the signs around me, an openness when we talk to people, a greater response in their hearts and their emotions. And you know, the thing about an era is it can all change so quickly. One minute you have a man making a cup of tea and noticing that the steam lifts the lid on a kettle. And within a hundred years that has totally revolutionised everything in our society. Suddenly, steam power changes the world. Who sails these days? Only for sport or recreation. Ships circle the globe and the Industrial Revolution broke out. A new era had come. So while it's sad when we see the closing of church buildings, we need to celebrate the opening of new churches on every side. I know I've told some of you that we moved to Bedford in 1990, and that was our first contact with New Frontiers. And at that point, Bedford was in the northern region, because the northern region consisted of one church in Bedford and one church in Newcastle. If I'm totally honest with you, there was only one reason there was a church in Newcastle, and that was because Ian Galloway had made such a nuisance of himself with Terry, trying to get him to go up there, Terry kept saying, no, we're predominantly on the south coast. And he, then... Ian got the advantage. And when Terry said that to him one time, he said, how does India fit with the south coast? And he said, oh, but that's different. I only go out to India a couple of times a year. And Ian said, twice a year's fine. <laughs> and so Terry 
had started to work with Ian Galloway in Newcastle. Bedford is no longer in the northern region. Many of you will have seen the number of churches we are starting to plant across the north of this country. And even while we've been meeting here, we've put a church planting in Hull. And it's doing well. Just recently, manager of a music shop in London said to one of the guys from Christ Church that meets right in the centre of London, I don't know what's happening. We are doing so much business with new churches. It's great, isn't it? Come with us and you will see blessing. But the Bible in your hands is full <coughs> of the story of characters who lived through an experience when God turned the tide. They're real flesh and blood. They're real men. They often had to battle through. And over the next couple of months, we're going to look at three of them. We're going to look at a visionary, Joseph. We're going to look at a mighty warrior. He didn't know it. Gideon. And we're going to look at a courageous, enduring builder, Nehemiah. As we plant here in Doncaster, we need to be encouraged and instructed by studying these Bible characters rather than simply taking on board the latest church growth technique. We could go for 40 days of purpose. We could join G12. There's all sorts of things we could do. But my faith is in the vision that God has put before us. And that's where I'd rather yours was. It's my conviction that our greatest need is to know God better, to trust him more implicitly, to obey him more conscientiously, to take action, expecting him to be true to his promises. And if we do that, we will bring him great glory. So Joseph, Gideon and Nehemiah. We're going to start off looking at Joseph and I'm going to give you an introduction on that today. There aren't a lot of texts in what I'm talking about today but what I want to encourage you to do is read 20 chapters of Genesis. Yeah? Over the next few weeks. You don't have to do it today. You can leave it till tomorrow. Okay? Can you read Genesis 30 through to Genesis 50? Okay? Because that will give you the background that as we start to unpack this, it will pull out things that are familiar. That is the period from Joseph's birth 
to Joseph's death. Covers 20 chapters in Genesis. Now, the story of Joseph is almost undoubtedly it's one of the most beautiful, intriguing stories written. You know, if it wasn't in the Bible, someone would have made it into a soap opera. I kid you not. All right? It has in it dreams and visions. It's got in it family feuds, and a good few of those. He had a lot of brothers. Okay? It's got envy and hatred. It's got passion. It's got lust. It's got scenes of great wealth. It's got the squalor of a prison cell. And it's got an astonishing rise to power. Now tell me, what does that not have that dynasty had? A prison cell maybe, yeah. But, you know, it's got all the makings of a great drama. And through it runs the thread of this character who is central to the entire saga, <coughs> Joseph. He starts out as a naive boy. You see in him innocence and yet arrogance. And he ends up as a man who has been refined by really testing circumstances. And as a result of passing through that, he is put in a position of enormous power and prominence. Who was this man? Where did he come from? Well, like all great family epics, there's a lot of twists and turns in the story. Okay? And they start before he was even born. So let's just have a quick look at behind the scenes to help us understand what we're going to see in the family background later. Joseph was an especially loved and longed for child. His father already had ten sons. But Rachel which was his favourite wife, was childless. Her position was all the more desperate because her sister, Leah, who was Jacob's first wife, seemed to be able to produce children at the drop of a hat. Every time she looked round, there was another one. And there she was, unable to have children. And finally, her frustration and her disappointment got to breaking point. She didn't know how to cope with this situation. And she, she got to that point where she couldn't just hang on waiting and hoping any longer. She had to do something. And we get to that point now and then, don't we? We feel, God might have promised something, but actually, I can't just keep waiting and hoping. I've got to do something. And that's where she got to. She had to do something. The tension was beginning to destroy her marriage. So one day, there she was, and she was upset and probably shouting at Jacob, and he was probably reacting back as men do, 
and in desperation she came up with a plan where she could be made a mother by proxy. She'd become, sorry, she would find a surrogate mother. She even knew who she had in mind and that was her maid. And then she would take the resulting baby as her own. And that would solve the problem. They went ahead with that plan and as a result of that, Dan was born. Now, ironically, history is repeating itself here. Because if you look at what happened, Jacob's grandfather Abraham found himself in exactly the same situation. God had promised him a child through Sarah, his wife, and she was barren. And she offered her maid, Hagar, as a substitute. And Ishmael was born. The arrival of Ishmael had been disastrous at the time and it had repercussions that were still going through that family two generations later. In fact, it has repercussions, if you believe some Old Testament scholars, that are still going through the world today because it is believed that Ishmael fathered the Arab nations okay, and the other Jewish nation came through the other line and the child of Sarah. And those repercussions are plain to see today if that lineage is true. But whatever, okay, they hadn't learnt from Abraham's mistake that shortcutting God does not lead to success. Shortcutting God leads to complications and confusion even if it does seem to give a quick fix at the time. So here, Dan was born. And Rachel shouts out, God has vindicated me. That's what Dan means. But it was a lie. Because it wasn't God's plan. And the interesting thing, the name Dan disappears from the record. If you look at the genealogies in Revelation, you will find Dan's name does not appear in there. But Joseph's name is there, as is that of Manasseh, his son. So actually, when the final book of the Bible was written and they did the genealogy, Dan didn't fit in the equation. God doesn't need our manipulation, scheming and engineering to bring about his purposes. He is more than able to do that himself. Anyway, Rachel finally conceived. She finally conceived the child that God had already chosen and planned for even though she denied her frustration and disappointment to get her to try alternative methods. And we need to learn from that. It's by faith and patience that we inherit God's blessings. Too often churches have plenty of great ideas. They have great ideas about how they can produce spiritual offspring. Because it can be hard to wait for God. 
because it can be costly to do things his way. Why should we be thorough? Why should we be painstaking in the way we go about things? Why should we act with integrity when we can get good results using a quick method? Why did we spend two years laying a foundation here by teaching on the church and what the church is? We could have imported something. We could have found something that was colourful and bright and scintillating and appealing and probably gave quick results. But actually, if we don't put our time and our effort into getting the foundations right, and if we don't build carefully, will we gain anything? So, what's our main objective? Is our main objective in the way we do things to bring self-vindication, like Rachel did when she had Dan, or to be a child of God's choosing? Are we looking for something that quickly grows and fades fast? Or something that has slow, small beginnings but will stand strong and secure because it's been initiated by God and nurtured his way. We need, to let, we need to have patience. We need to have patience to let God do his perfect work amongst us. God's work in God's time and God's way produces God's fruit. And that's what happened when Joseph was born. And so finally, Joseph was born. And you know, he was special. He was special to his father. Not just in the way that any child is. But because he was the son of his old age and of his favourite wife, Rachel. And Rachel had won his heart when he was a young man. There was no one like Rachel. So what was natural? Jacob lavished gifts and love on Joseph. I think he was probably blind to what that was welling up in the other brothers when they saw Joseph treated with such favouritism. And then he gives him this coat. There's a number of interpretations of what it means. Some say it's a coat without sleeves. Uh, sorry, a coat with sleeves, which means you weren't expected to do any work because in those days, if you had a coat with long sleeves, you'd have to roll the sleeves up to do any work. People who did work wore coats with short or no sleeves. Some say it's a coat of colour. If it's a coat of colour, it's about the cost, because of the cost of the dyes and the materials that were used. But actually, whatever, this coat wasn't just ornamental. What it symbolised was that a birthright was being passed to Joseph. He was being treated specially. 
Now Reuben should have had that birthright. But he disqualified himself because he'd gone and committed sexual sin. And then all the other brothers were being passed over and this birthright was being given to Joseph. If you put yourself in that situation, is it any wonder they started to feel jealous? Joseph's behaviour didn't help. He added fuel to the fire. He may have only been about 17, he may have been naive. But he, he, first of all, he started going back to his father and telling him about the questionable activities that his brothers were getting into. He started telling tales. Now, is that going to make you popular with your brothers? And then, I don't know, was it happy ignorance or was he just plain obnoxious? But he goes and starts telling them about a dream he's had. And that fans the flame into fire. In this dream, Joseph and his brothers were out working in the field and they were binding sheaves of corn. And then suddenly, Joseph's sheath arose and all the other sheaths that the brothers had been binding prostrated themselves around it as if coming in worship. Now the other brothers weren't keen on the implications of that dream. When Joseph told his father about it, actually you'll find even Jacob told him that that perhaps wasn't a good thing to talk to them about. And then he went and told them about another dream about 11 stars and the sun and the moon and how they bowed down to him. I mean, he was getting ideas of grandeur, wasn't he? Probably delusional. So here he was the visionary, the dreamer, probably not fully realising what he was stirring up in the hearts of his brothers. And then one day, an opportunity arose. And they could get their revenge. Jacob had sent Joseph out to find his brothers. They were tending the sheep out in the country. And they saw him coming, and they plotted to kill him. But Reuben managed to put them off from doing that. And so instead, they threw him in a hole in the ground and then sold him to a passing camel train that was going to Egypt. And that's when the drama starts to unfold. It's not only the true account of a man's life, but we find in it another story which is told from God's perspective. Because two generations before, God had said something to Abraham. And you'll find that in Genesis 15, verses 13, 14 and 16. And it says... This is God talking to Abraham. 
Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Afterward, they'll come out with many possessions and in the fourth generation they will return here. Joseph was a key part of a plan that was far broader in scope than one man's life. And yet, his part in it was so important. Here we have a sovereign God unfolding his divine purposes that would reach down throughout the ages. It was his plan for the beginning of the nation of Israel. And all that hinged on the life of this one young man. God needed a man he could trust. He needed a man he could trust in a position of enormous power. He needed a man who was impervious to charm and flattery. He needed a man who wasn't going to be vindictive. He needed a man who was free from hidden guilt. He needed a man who had proved himself reliable, who was hard-working, who was efficient, skilled in administration, wise and compassionate. Where on earth would God find such a man? The answer's in the story. He would choose him before he was born. He'd put him in a family environment <coughs> and then put him through a rigorous training program. Joseph's reactions to the events that he suffered and his demeanour were crucial to the success of the plan. But behind the plan, God was at work. In John chapter 13, verse 7, Jesus says, You do not realise now what I am doing, but later you'll understand. Those words could have been written over Joseph's life. In Psalm 105, verse 17, talking about God, it says, he sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Joseph's brothers acted out of envy, jealousy and spite. But actually, the psalmist claims that God was behind the scenes. And God is just the same 
in his church and people today. He chooses, he trains, he tests and he elevates. We can't make these things happen, not in our own strength. We need to listen to God and cooperate with him. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Let's just stand and pray. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. 